Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can be here today in the sunshine of your presence. Lord, there are so many in this world who don't know what it means to have a relationship with you and your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that this coming year, you will help us to reach even more people with the good news of salvation. I pray, Father, as we open your word today, the spirit of truth would guide us and give us understanding. But we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I suppose this morning I'll start out where our scripture reading was in the book of 2 Timothy. Turn there with me, if you will. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Timothy was an apprentice of Paul the Apostle, and Paul was giving him some instruction here. And he encourages him, in the light of the coming of the Lord, to preach the word. And he says, be ready in season and what? What do you think out of season means? What do you think he means in season and out of season? Think he's talking about winter and spring and summer and fall? Or is he talking about the fact that sometimes people want to hear what the message is and sometimes they won't? But it wasn't up to Timothy. He says, you need to preach the word. He says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Doctrine's another word for teaching. But according to their own desires, because they have what? Itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Have you, you ever have one of those itches you can't scratch? Not since you got married, Right? So I love my wife, but can you get that? It, there's nothing worse than an itch you can't get to, right? There's something that feels relieving about scratching an itch. Now, it's interesting that Paul would use that. How many of you know what it feels like to have that relief when you, oh, it itches? Ah. Oh. Should be all of you, and that's why the Apostle Paul used this imagery. He's saying, you're, you're aware of what it feels like. You have that itch and you can't get to. He says, there are going to be people in the last days they are going to have that in the way they hear. They've got that itch. They want to hear a certain thing. And when they don't hear what they want to hear, they're going to go and find people who say what they want to hear. They're going to heap up for themselves teachers. He calls this out as a marked sign of the last days. He says they're going to turn their ears away from what? The truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, we're going to see this played out as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe that what Paul is talking about here is outlined in a lesson that the same apostle is pointing us to in 1 Corinthians 10. And it's been quite a while since we've been back in 1 Corinthians 10. As I mentioned, it was back in August that we had part 4. So I'll take a little bit of time. But I don't want to take a whole lot of time here in 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul starts out in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, saying, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be what? Unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He's talking about the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. How they all had the same experience. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things 
as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now notice verse 11 especially. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for who? For us, for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And that's where we got the title, Admonitions for the Last Days. The Apostle Paul is clear in what he's trying to tell us here. We have a, 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 an experience of Israel where they all shared the same spiritual experience. But most of them fell in the wilderness. Of the original ones that came out of Egypt, only two went into the promised land. And so Paul is taking that, that history and saying, let's not repeat their mistakes. Let's learn from their mistakes. And he tells us that the history of God's people is written for us to learn from. And I believe that applies to all the history of Israel, but it's interesting that he pulls out five stories. And, and, and so in this particular series, we've been looking at these, f- these five stories. And the one I want to focus on today is there in verse 10, where he says, Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, you'll get different things if you read commentators on which experience of Israel this applied to, and you can only uh, understand that because they kind of complained a lot, right? So it says they complained. Which story was that? Um, A lot of them, right? But I found this statement in the book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, which says, In the case of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, we have a lesson of warning lest we follow their example. And then, what we just read in 1 Corinthians is quoted those last few verses that mention that, that complaining of Israel. And that story, in case you haven't looked at it, we're going to look at it now, is the story of the rebellion of Korah. The rebellion of Korah. Now, the rebellion of Korah is one of three notorious rebellions in the Bible. I mean, God's people rebelled a lot, but there are three notorious rebellions. There was the rebellion, of course, the great rebellion of Lucifer in heaven. And, and when you go at, you know, the Bible doesn't give us an inordinate amount of detail on the rebellion of Lucifer in heaven. We get pieces of it. But when we look at the rebellion of Korah or the rebellion, the other rebellion is the rebellion of Absalom, the son of David, we see little pieces there that help us to understand more fully what the spirit of rebellion is and the spirit of the great rebel Lucifer that started out in heaven. And so we can draw those out, but this this story of Korah's rebellion is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. And I want to have you turn there, and I want to give a little bit of the background before we we dive right into the story itself. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're going to Numbers 16. And I just want to give you a little background, as I said. Now, you go to Numbers 14, and Numbers 14 is a story of where they sent out the 12 spies into the Promised Land. They were to spy out the land and come back and tell them what was in the promised land. And then the the, the Israelites were going to go in and conquer the promised land. And and, and they were going to enter the land of Canaan. That had been their whole goal. 
Only when they went to the promised land, they came back and they said, oh yeah, it's everything that we heard of. It's all, it's great, except for one thing. There's these giants in the land. There's no way we can take them. And so it's just like God said, only we're never going to be able to conquer them. That was what the majority of the spies said, 10 of them. But two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, hey, listen, I understand it looks uh, foreboding, but God promised us. And it's not our battle, it's his battle, and he can give us the victory. Well, the people turned on Caleb and Joshua. The, 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 the Israelite congregation sided with the ten spies. They were actually ready to stone Caleb and Joshua to death, and the Lord interposed. And then the Lord sentenced them, because of their unbelief, to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So we're coming off the heels of that. So I want you to think about how you'd feel. Now, you're right at the border of the promised land. You could be there in a week... And now the Lord has just told you, sorry, it's going to be, they'd already been traveling for a while, it's going to be 38 more years that you're going to be, or 39, total of 40 years, that you're going to be out in the wilderness wandering around. So you're not feeling real happy about that. Now put put that in your mindset as we consider then this man Korah. Now Korah was a cousin of Moses. He was a Levite. And you may recall that God had entrusted the service of the temple to the Levites. Now, originally it had been for everybody, but because of the incident with the golden calf in Exodus 32, God had said that he was going to only have the Levites do the service of the temple, and only the sons of Aaron could be priests. Now, they've just got this sentence from the Lord, that they're going to wander in the wilderness. Korah, the cousin of Moses, had been with the ten and the congregation against Joshua and Caleb. And he's not real happy about this sentence that we've got to wander in the wilderness, and he begins to entertain the idea. Evidently, it had gone on for some time that there had been some jealousy there. Anyway, he felt a little slighted. I mean, Moses, you know how it is with a family member. It's different when it's a family member. Sometimes if somebody else gets a promotion, it's one thing, but if it's a family member, it's like, hey, wait a minute. How, how come he got picked and not me? And so Korah felt a little bit slighted that Aaron was the priest, but he couldn't be a priest. And Moses was the leader, and he's a cousin of Moses. Why makes Moses greater than him? And now they've got to wander in the wilderness. and began to entertain the idea that this isn't God's idea. God's not displeased with us. It's Moses' idea. Moses is displeased with us. And Moses is wanting to wander, have us travel around in the wilderness until we all die out in the wilderness, and then he's going to take all our stuff. At least that's the story he began to peddle. So you read Numbers chapter 16 with me. Let's look at the first few verses here. You'll see this. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now Korah the son of Izar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Now let me pause here. We never hear about on the son of Peleth again. Uh, some commentators suggest that maybe on came to his senses and said, you know, I don't want to get caught up in this thing. I don't know. We don't know. What we do here is, is Dathan and Abiram. And notice that all of these guys were of what tribe? No, no, no. Not Levi. Reuben, right? Korah was of Levi. They were of Reuben. What was significant about the tribe of Reuben? Who was Reuben among Jacob's sons? What's that? He was the firstborn. And who was the one who naturally got to be the leader? The firstborn. And so Korah figures, if I can get some Reubenites into my camp, 
will just say, hey, Moses, look, you're taking this responsibility to yourself. It really ought to go to the Reubenites. So he's kind of hedging his bets here with the Reubenites as he brought them in. So the Bible says, Korah, the son of Izar, took these men, Dathan, Abiram, and on, sons of Reuben, verse 2, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. Now, the idea of rising up suggests that he didn't come out all at once and, and rebel against Moses, the leader. He went and he got supporters. He went out and got the guys from the camp of Reuben. He went out and got his 200, 250. That's a good number of leaders, influential, some of the most influential leaders in Israel, got them all on his side. And when that happened, then he stood up in open rebellion. And it says there in verse 3, it says, They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much, what? Upon yourselves. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you, what? Exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord. So now here he comes out with it. You guys are doing this all by yourselves. You stood up and, and, and you put yourself in this place. God didn't put you there. God's not the one who sentenced us, sentenced us in the wilderness. You guys. And you're making yourselves like you're better than everybody. And, and I should interject here, and we'll see this played out more as we go. God has always had an organization and leadership in his church. There are positions that people hold in the church. We have pastors, we have elders, we have deacons, we have deaconesses, we have greeters, and on and on and on. And then there are members who don't hold positions. None of those positions are an equality issue. Right? I'm not the pastor because I'm more important than the elder. The elder's not an elder because he's more important than the deacon. You understand that? In other words, there are roles that people have, and the roles, there's not an, it's not an equality thing. But what Korah does is he makes it an equality thing. Moses being the leader of Israel wasn't because Moses was better than Israel. That's not something God ever said. God appointed him to be a leader. He's appointed other leaders. But Korah made out like, well, here you're putting yourselves above us, and you're better than us. You take it upon yourselves, they said. And Moses was, and Aaron were, were blindsided by this. They didn't expect it coming. These are people, they, colleagues they'd worked with, and, it, you know, a rebellion doesn't start out in the open. It's kind of this rumbling, this, you know, people having these little parking lot committees and stuff like that, right? And the next thing you know, here's Moses. He's hearing this. And the Bible says he fell on his face. If you look there in verse uh, 4. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and his company, all his company, saying, What? Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. And he goes on here. Now, I want, you have to understand that to, to appear before the Lord with a censer, a censer was a dish that the priests would put incense in. Only the priests had the censers and offered incense. Okay? Korah and his company weren't priests. They were arguing for the priesthood. And it's interesting that Moses didn't reject that. Moses said, fine. You appear before the Lord as a priest, and we'll see if he accepts you or not. And he said, we'll do it when? 
Tomorrow. Why do you think God said tomorrow? Why not now? What's that? To give them a chance. This story is filled with, and you're going to see, the Bible's filled with these little things that we often read over, but God wanted to give the people an opportunity to reflect on what they were doing. I don't know if you've ever gotten caught up in a mob mentality. Everybody's going to do something, and you get into it, and you're all riled up about it, and after you have a chance to step back and reflect, you're thinking, you know, maybe I was a little rash. So the Lord is giving them an opportunity. It says, tomorrow, think this through. Then the Bible tells us that Moses goes to meet privately with Dathan and Abiram, figuring that they're probably influenced by Korah. If he can get them alone, maybe he can win back their confidence. And so the Bible says, and I'm, I'm jumping over pieces and, and it, for sake of time, um, in fact, let me just interject here. You know, no sermon is ever intended to uh, provide for us all of our spiritual food. You know that. And so I'm hoping, you know, there's a great chapter in the book Patriarchs of Prophets called The Rebellion of Korah. I would encourage you to take some time this week and read that, and you'll get a lot more insight. And, of course, reading the passage here in not only number 16, but 17 continues the story, which we're not going to get into today. But we're going to jump ahead here to... Um, Verse 12, now it says, And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of what? A land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey nor have given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now, I want you to understand their response. Again, Moses is trying to approach them privately, thinking, you know, maybe I'll get them to understand that the, that the path they're going on and some of the ideas they're entertaining about me are wrong. They won't even go talk to Moses. And they claim enlightenment. They say, hey, you want to put the eyes out? You want to blind these other people with your deceptions? You're not blinding us. We see clearly. They were sure that they saw the thing the right way. And they said, and and what's fascinating is, where did they say they had come out of? They were so deceived that they were talking about the place that God had rescued them from as the real land of milk and honey. Um, That was Egypt. What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves, and how soon they forget. And I think to myself, how often it happens among professed believers that the Lord Jesus rescues us out of the slavery of sin. But, you know, sometimes we go on in the Christian life, and we start to look back. And we say, oh, remember, before I was a Christian, I was allowed to do this and this and this, and now I can't do anything. You ever run into people like that? They forget their bondage. They think... They forget they were in bondage. Hey, it was the land flowing of milk and honey. No, we're not coming up to talk with you, Moses. So the next day comes, and they all appear before the Lord. Once you look at verse 16, it says, Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord. You and they as well as Aaron, let each take his censer and put incense in it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses and Aaron, uh, with Moses and Aaron, 
And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. This is the door of the, this is, this is the court, in the front of the courtyard, you had the courtyard and you had the temple. The tabernacle of meeting was the holy place, and they were right in front of the holy place. That's, they met out right in front of the, the holy place of the sanctuary to present this, their censers before the Lord. It says, Then the glory of the Lord appeared in all the congregation. Verse 20, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. Verse 26, And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know. Now Moses goes on, and again, I'm jumping ahead for sake of time, but he basically says, Look, Here's how it's going to be. If these people die a natural death like everybody dies, then you know I'm a liar. I made it up. I'm everything you said I was. I've taken this responsibility upon myself. But if something new happens and the ground opens up and swallows them whole, then you know that the Lord has spoken and he's made it clear that we are his appointed leaders. And the Bible tells us, verse 31, Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and with all their goods. So they went, so they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their, uh, at their cry for they said, lest the earth Swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And then the Lord basically told the sons of Aaron, pick up the censers, they're holy now. They've been presented before me, etc. Kind of a, an eventful day in Israel. Right? Now, there's, there's, I want to make some application points after a little bit, but um, th- this I found interesting as I was going through this story. In Testaments, Volume 3, as it comments, it says, The appearance of Korah and his company, all impiously exercising the priest's office with their censers, struck the people with admiration. In other words, when all of Korah's company they came up with their censers, the people were just awed, and they said, Oh, this is so awesome. They did not see that these men were offering a daring affront to the divine majesty. Now, the reason I bring that up is to say, sometimes we can side with somebody and think God is in it and think we're right on the right side. Here they were struck with the admiration that this must be of the Lord, and yet they were offering the Lord a great insult. The devil works very ingeniously in these last days to get us on the wrong side while making us think we're on the right side. That's what deception is. That's what the Bible, book of Revelation, the signs in the book of Matthew, you see that word again and again, do not be deceived. The devil knows how to present things to our mind to make it look different than it really is. So it was with Dathan and Abiram, thinking the land of Egypt was the land of promise. And so as we, as we went through here, I mean, you have, the, uh, you have first the Lord giving them the next day. 
The next day, they appear before the Lord. And you see in that sequence that the first thing that happens is the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to consume the whole group of them. Step away. And I, and I have a statement up here. I'm kind of jumping ahead in, in my notes just because this is where we are. That you ever thought about that? Now, this is, God says this a lot. He says it several times in this story. Step back, Moses. Get out of the way. Right? This, the same thing you see back in the golden calf where God says, stand back and, and let me consume them. Like, why is he doing that? You ever think about that? Like, does, does God really need to ask Moses permission to consume the people? Does he really need to get Moses out of the way? Can he not handle this by himself? Now, the reason I'm asking that is to make this point, and Moses knew this point. The reason God put it that way was God was entreating Moses to intercede for the people. And I'm gonna, I have a slide on that. I'm just going to jump ahead to that, and, and we'll come back. As I said, it was a little out of order. Um, this is commenting on the golden calf, but it's the same thing when God said, get out of the way, let, let me consume them. If God had purpose to destroy Israel, who could plead for them? Right? Moses, get out of the way. Look, if God wants to destroy, he will destroy. But Moses discerned ground for hope, where there appeared only discouragement and wrath. The words of God, let me alone, he understood not to forbid, but what? To encourage intercession. If the Lord just wanted to destroy the people, he would have destroyed them. The reason he said that to Moses, he was trying to draw out into his leader a heart of intercession and compassion for his people. Because that's the heart of God for his people. When we see it all through this story, he could have destroyed all the whole lot of them. So he says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to get the congregation. He says, Lord, should the whole congregation suffer for one man's sin? So he says, okay, tell them all to get away from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Even then, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram have every opportunity to come up and say, hey, Lord, you know what? We were thinking about it. Let's talk this out. But they, they were past talking. And the Bible says that the ground opened up and swallowed up the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and their families. And then the Bible says that a fire went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the 250. Now, we don't see it as clearly in the passage, but this didn't happen, this didn't happen at the same time. It didn't happen concurrently. First, Korah and his group went down. And there was a moment... Once again, a moment, an opportunity for the 250 to say, you know what, Lord, let's rethink this. God continually gives man an opportunity to repent. Even when, as we're going to see in the story as we go further, they had sealed their hearts past that point. But he still gives the opportunity, if nothing else, to demonstrate to those of us reading today that God is always willing to save. Well, the 250 are consumed, and then what happens the Lord allows the others to go home and think about it. But what happens next is just unbelievable, really. I was going to say tragic. It's more than tragic. It's unbelievable. As you continue on the story, so, so Korah and his company have been devoured by the, the earthquake. The 250 men have been consumed. Verse 41 says, On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying what? <laughs> you have killed... Who? The people of the Lord. Now, Korah and Dathan and Abiram and Chephir, they're the these people are so, the congregation is so bl blinded that they're calling the rebels, not only are they calling the rebels the people of the Lord, um, I mean, I can just see Moses saying, yeah, you're right, I caused the earthquake. You're right, I'm the one that opened the Red Sea when we went across. I'm the pillar of cloud, and that, that's me. I mean, seriously, 
to, 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 this is just trying to reveal to you and me. And, I, and let me make this plain. Because I'll read this and say, these guys are idiots. You ever do that with the Israelites? I'm every bit as susceptible. This is why this is on record. This is why Paul brings it up as, as an example. There's something in us that, that wants to believe error instead of truth. The, the, the wants to believe the, the bad guy is the good guy and the good guy is the bad guy. There's part of us that wants that. And it will lead us to believing that. They're so convinced, they have been so brainwashed that they're to the point where they say, you have killed the people of the Lord, verse 42. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses, get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Again, you have that. But Moses tells Aaron, you go get a censer and you go put incense on it and you go intercede for the people. The Bible says the plague already began to start, but Moses and Aaron interceded and stayed the plague. Now, I, I think about this too, and I, maybe I shouldn't be saying this and admitting this about myself. I've still got a long way to go, but I'm going to tell you that if there are a bunch of people rebelling against me and they've laid these plans and the Lord's like, get out of the way, I'm going to say, is this far enough? Is this good? You got a clear shot? That just, I'm thinking to myself, you know, Mo- Moses is saying, no, Lord. These are the people. These people wanted to kill him. Get him and Aaron out of the way. Lord says, get out of the way. He says, no, we're going to intercede for them. We want to save them. And in that, we see the foreshadowing of Christ. who laid down his life for his enemies. And, and, and the reality is, that's the spirit we all need to have. We need to be praying for that. I need to be praying for that. I need more of that. Let me alone that I may consume them. They intercede and they stop the plague, but not until nearly 15,000 had perished in this rebellion. So this is a huge piece of Israelite history, and I want to draw some things out of it, this story that's written for our admonition. What, what are the lessons that we, you know, we've already seen some, what are the lessons that we can draw out of it? I suppose the first thing that I, I think of when I read the story, and I ask you, is why, why did Korah rebel? Why did he rebel? Why does anybody rebel? They're unhappy with... Okay, they're unhappy with whatever they're rebelling against. That's good. A little bit further. Why does a person rebel against something? They're unhappy with what? First of all, let me just add this here. Rebellion is never against a, um, a subordinate. Okay, the CEO of the company doesn't rebel against the mail clerk. Right? Why? Because rebellion is about authority. And at the heart of it all, it's about a person who doesn't like to be told what to do. Right? That, I mean, that's why. Hey, who cares if you think this way and I think that way? You don't have any authority over me. But if you're in a position where you have an authority to say something to me and I've got to do it, that's where the rebellion comes in. Korah didn't like the idea that Moses was telling him what to do, as he saw it. Not God. Moses was telling him. Aaron was telling him. Now they told him they had to wander in the wilderness. That was at the root of his rebellion. He wanted to be in the place of Moses. He wanted, and this is the interesting thing. Even in the church... In the Christian church, and I hear this, in the Adventist church, we talk, I've had people talk to me about leadership, and they say, you know, I just, 
Uh, I don't think there's this, I don't think people should be, you should have people in leadership to tell other people what to do. You know what people really mean when they say that? They mean, I wish I was the one telling people what to do. I haven't met a person yet who goes and says stuff like that, who doesn't wish they were the one. If the very same person, when they have their little sphere or whatever of influence, they're telling people what to do. Cora wanted to be the person telling people what to do. Now, when a person launches a rebellion, and you go back, that's Lucifer didn't want to be told what to do. Uh, an inherent piece of that is because they feel fully qualified to be in the driver's seat. A person doesn't rebel against authority if they think the authority is doing them some good. It's when they think, I could do it better than they're telling me to do. Right? Lucifer thought he could run things better. Korah thought he could run things better. Now, does a person launching the rebellion say, hey, listen, here's the thing. I just don't like people telling me what to do. I want to be the one telling people what to do, so I'm launching this rebellion. Is that how they do it? Oh, no, you're going to come up with other reasons that are going to sound, because you're, you're, the people aren't going to side with you on that. Notice this statement. Patriarchs and Prophets 402 says, oops, this is not the one I want to look at. The Hebrews were not willing to submit to the directions and restrictions of the Lord. They were restless under restraint and unwilling to what? Receive reproof. This was the what? Secret of their murmuring against Moses. All through the history of the church, God's servants have had the same spirit to meet. This was the what? This was the secret. Why is it called a secret? Because it's not what they're telling people, right? Korah wasn't around telling people, like I just said, hey, I want to be in charge. No, instead he was going, Lucifer wasn't going around to the angels in heaven and saying, look, I just want to be in charge instead of God. He went around saying, you know, I just don't think, I think, I think there are things I could do to help things out. I'm just trying to help God. I'm really trying to make this a better place for all of us, right? It sounds so much better that way. That wasn't the real reason. Here's the real secret. The underlying reason was that he along with the rest of the Hebrews, which we're going to see here, this is why I found such a ready uh, company to receive this rebellion, restless under restraint and unwilling to receive reproof. And so it wasn't hard for the rebels to find sympathizers among the Israelites who were also tired of being told what to do. So to really launch this thing out, Korah suggested a whole new way of doing things in Israel. He was going to... Um, he proposed a more grace-centered kind of leadership. And what's interesting is that everyone agreed, as you're going to see here shortly, everyone agreed that what he proposed was exactly what the church needed. This, we've needed this for a long time. Finally, somebody's come up with this because Moses, he's just, he's just running this thing into the ground. Notice this statement. To those who are in the wrong and deserving of reproof, there is nothing more pleasing than to receive what? Sympathy and praise, right? I mean, look, if you're, if you, <laughs> and I think about, I wish we had more of the students. We have some students here today. Maybe you go to one class, if you're going into one classroom and the teacher's telling you things you need to improve on, in the other classroom, all, all the teacher ever does is, is say positive things about you, where are you choosing to go? I mean, the fact of the matter is, we just, we, and, and I'm, don't get me wrong there. I mean, I'm not encouraging that somebody's constantly berating somebody for their wrongs. But there's a natural, there are times when we need to be reproved for our wrongs. Isn't that right? But it's not in our, you know, it's, ten, it's not our tendency to choose that. 
especially when you're deserving of wrong. Boy, you want sympathy and praise. And notice it says, thus Korah and his associates gained the attention and enlisted the support of the congregation. In, in other words, in this way. How did he get everybody on his side? While God had told them they needed to be reproved because of their unbelief and wander in the wilderness, Korah said, no, 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 I'm going to come in and we're going to talk them up. Oh, they like that. They like that. His hearers, notice what it says, his hearers thought they saw clearly that all their troubles might have been prevented if Moses had pursued a different course. They were, this makes perfect sense to them. Korah's got it. He's on track. They, they thought they saw clearly. What is that just telling us? They didn't see clearly. But in their own minds, they were on the right side, and they were really on the wrong side. They decided that all their disasters were chargeable to him, that is Moses, and that their exclusion from Canaan was in consequence of what? The mismanagement of Moses and Aaron. That if Korah would be their leader and would encourage them by dwelling upon their good deeds instead of reproving their sins, they would have had a very peaceful, prosperous journey. Korah had this new way of doing things. We're just going to talk, we're going to be positive, talk nice. None of this talk about sin and reform and... And the, and the people saw clearly that that was the solution. This is it. This is going to be the thing that turns the church around. Was this written for? Our admonition. So Korah had quite a number of supporters here. I found this interesting. Uh, I'm going to pass that up. In Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2, it says that when the church depart from God... They despise the plain testimony and complain of severity and harshness. It is a sad evidence of the what? Lukewarm state of the church. That's where Korah was. He didn't want to hear Moses pointing out what they needed to improve on. Now, what's interesting is that everybody who took part in this rebellion was fully convinced that the Lord was on their side and not Moses' side. Fully convinced. Patriarchs and Prophets 396 says their insinuations, these are the insinuations of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram as they went around and they told people their ideas about changing things, were so readily what? Received. In other words, the congregation ate it up. They were so readily received that they, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, ventured still further and at last they really believed themselves to be actuated by zeal for God. They were convinced that God was with them and against Moses. Similarly, check this one out says, these deluded souls, speaking of Korah, Dathan, and Byram, really came to believe that they had a zeal for the Lord in the matter and that they would be, what? They would not be excusable unless they carried out to the full their purpose of making Moses see and feel the preposterous position he occupied toward Israel. In other words, they felt convicted that they wouldn't be right with God if they didn't rebel against what Moses was trying to do. God was leading them, the Holy Spirit was in it, and they had to, if they were going to follow the Holy Spirit, they had to rebel. They became, in their minds, they became convinced that this was reality. Some of you who know anything about what's going on in our church today are starting to put things together. Because that spirit is rife, even now, in our church. We see the, 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 the principles laid out right here. They were convinced that God was on their side. And here's another thing that I found interesting and I wanted to share. It says, in this work of disaffection, there was greater harmony and union of views and feelings among these discordant elements than had ever been known to exist before. Now, discordant means what? They don't get along. 
These are people who never get along, but all of a sudden they're getting along. Right? So the 250 men of renown and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and the congregation and all these people who didn't agree with it, now they're all on the same page. More than ever before, they were united. And so they took that unity as an evidence that God must be with them, not against them. So they were convinced that what they were doing in this rebellion was what God would have them do. Do you believe it's possible for the devil to lead you that far? If you don't, you're open game. I have to say, he could lead me that far, if not for the grace of Christ. It's understanding things like this that keep us at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, help me to see things as you would have me to see them. Part of that is being willing to take that correction when the Lord gives it, which Korah and company were not willing to do. So note, just because you're convinced of something and have a large number of people on your side is no evidence that you're right. It's not automatic evidence you're wrong, but it's not automatic evidence you're right, as we see in the case of Korah. And here's the scary part. In persisting in rebellion in the face of the strongest evidences, I mean, think of what God had done to make it very clear where he was standing in this matter. the, The earth opens up and swallows up Korah and company. Fire goes out from the pillar of cloud and fire and consumes the two. I mean, you know, the very clearly divine acts. God had given evidence upon evidence and evidences, other evidences within the leadership of Moses in the history of Israel. But in persisting in rebellion in the face of these, what happens when you get stronger evidence and stronger evidence and you continue to dig your heels in? What happens to your heart? You get more hardened to things. You get less susceptible to the voice of entreaty of the Holy Spirit. And so it was. The rebels sealed their hearts against the only means that God can employ to save them. Notice this statement in Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, Korah would not have taken the course he did had he known that all the directions and reproofs communicated to Israel were from God. Now, I love that. And how many times do we involve ourselves, hey, if I knew different, but he what? He might have known this. And I listen to church members, young and old, get involved in debates, and they take, they jump to a side on an issue because of nothing they've studied, but just because of where their friends are. They can talk about music, and they say, well, I believe this about music. Why do you believe that? Well, because it's what I've always believed. My friends believe it. Dumb idea. Oh, let's talk about sports. and they, Oh, no, I think this, and I think that. And we take our sides, and we don't have a clue where we're standing. We're just standing where somebody else is. Korah might have known this. He didn't know. And if he, if he would have known better, he wouldn't have made this rash move with rebellion. But he could have known it. How many things are there that we could know, but we just, I don't know, we let the devil occupy our time and other things instead of seeking to understand what the Lord's will is for us. God had given overwhelming evidence that he was leading Israel. But Korah and his companions rejected light, notice, until they became so blinded that the most striking manifestations of his power were not sufficient to convince them. I mean, look, folks, you're one of the 250. Think this through with me. You're one of the 250, and you watch the ground open up and swallow up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and their households. 
Is there not something in, in, in you that just backs off a little bit and says, okay, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. No, they didn't move. Just like the masses at the flood, right? When the animals went on the ark, and you'd think somebody would have said, hey, wait a minute, I think I'm going to get on. No. Nope. All that reveals to us is God had done everything to save, but every continual pleading he made that they rejected just hardened their hearts to the point that they couldn't respond anymore. They were so blinded. The most striking manifestations of God's power were not sufficient. You know, some of you here today, God has pleaded with you and pleaded with you, and perhaps he's pleading with you now about some sin you're wrestling with, and if you put it off and put it off and think you're going to deal with it later, you're not going to deal with it later. You're going to be so blinded to it later, you'll never see the issue. It's only in his mercy that God comes to us and and tries to draw us away from those sins that so easily beset us. They attributed them, these supernatural things, they attributed them to all, all to human, human rather, let me say that again. They attributed these signs all to human or satanic agency. In other words, Moses did it, Aaron did it, the devil did it, but God didn't. God's not the one who opened up the ground. God's not the one who... And what does the Bible call it when you take the work of God and you call it the work of the devil? It's the unpardonable sin. It was this act that sealed their doom. They had committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. I want to pause there, and I want us to really understand what this is saying. What does it mean, sin against the Holy Spirit? How do I sin against the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit come to you and talk to you in an audible voice? As a rule? How does he talk to us? In our conscience, how? He's talking to you right now, through me. He's talking to you, perhaps through a teacher, perhaps even through a child, perhaps through... The Holy Spirit works through different agencies, a sermon you may hear on the radio, right? It's so important for us to understand that because it's, if we don't understand that, then we say, oh, that was just that guy, right? Greg says something, that's just Greg. What if it was the Lord through his Holy Spirit? That's what they did with Moses. God was speaking. It wasn't Moses speaking to the people. God was speaking to the people. It wasn't Aaron. It was God. But when they said, oh, that's just Moses, they called the voice of God the voice of man, and they sinned against the Spirit of God, a sin by which man's heart is effectually hardened against the influence of divine grace. It is through the agency of the Holy Spirit that God communicates with man, and those who deliberately reject this agency as satanic have cut off the channel of communication between the soul and heaven. That's how God chooses to communicate. You just cut the the phone line, as it were. Not that we have a lot of phone lines anymore. We have all the... You you broke the cell tower or something. (laughs) It is hardly possible for men to offer greater insult to God than to despise and reject the instrumentalities he would use for their salvation. Why? Because it's a channel of his communication. He's trying to, it's the only, you cut off that channel and he has no other way, no other way to reach people. Now, in light of this, there's a statement that, that I wanted to share with you that to me is, well, I'm just going to read it. It'll, it speaks for itself. It's found in Testimonies for the Church, volume 4, page 195. It says, the names of God's chosen servants have been handled with disrespect and in some cases with absolute contempt by certain persons whose duty it is to uphold them. As members of the church, it's our duty to uphold our leaders. Somebody wants to start talking bad about Elder Gallimore. Now listen to me carefully here. Whether it be Elder Gallimore, Elder Mitchell, or Elder Wilson, or whatever else. 
You don't have to agree with everything they do and say. That's not what I'm talking about. The Lord wouldn't say that. But there's a way to handle disagreements. And there's a respect due to leadership. When David had such respect for Saul while Saul was trying to kill him, they wouldn't raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. What does that say about some of the talk that goes on today about our leaders? But notice what it goes on to say. In some cases, with absolute contempt by certain persons whose duty it is to uphold them, the children, in the hearing of such conversations, have not failed to hear the disrespectful remarks of their parents in reference to the solemn reproofs and warnings of God's servant. They have understood the scornful jests and depreciatory speeches that from time to time have met their ears, and the tendency has been to bring sacred and eternal interests in their minds on a level with the common affairs of the world. Right? You got Elder Wilson addressing the world church in general conference session. That, that's God's voice speaking to his church. And I want to talk about that blah, 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 and talk it down like that's just a man. What it does is, and what it's saying here is in the minds of the children that are hearing, it just lowers it and puts it on a common level. If I can talk that way about it, it must just be common. What a work are these parents doing in making what? Infidels of their children, even in their childhood. This is the way that children are taught to be irreverent and to rebel against heaven's reproof of sin. Spiritual declension can but prevail where such evils exist. These very fathers and mothers, blinded by the enemy, marvel why their children are so inclined to unbelief and to doubt the truth of the Bible. Where does this come from? They wonder. They wonder that it is so difficult to reach them by moral and religious influences. Had they spiritual eyesight, they would at once discover that this deplorable condition of things is the result of their own home influence, the offspring of their jealousy and distrust. Thus, many infidels are educated in the family circles of professed Christians. Written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. You see in the rebellion of Korah, the tendency of human pride to swell up into a vying for the higher place, and then next thing you know, you're, 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 you're trying to pitch some different way than the Lord planned, and you're trying to make yourself look good when all you want is to be in charge, and the next thing you convince yourself the Holy Spirit is on your side, and then the next thing you're committing the unpardonable sin because you're so rooted in your own opinions. And this is a potential for any one of God's people who doesn't recognize the frailty of the human heart. Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord says, try it, know the heart and I try the reins. And I want to tell you today, we see this rebellion of Korah being played out on many fronts in our church. I alluded to it, this whole women's ordination issue today. Friends, this is hand in glove, Korah's rebellion. I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about where you stand. You may say, hey, I think that we should ordain women to the gospel ministry and, and you say, I think we shouldn't. The issue today that I see is how the church has responded to what leadership has decided. You look at this story and you tell us in many quarters that we're not responding in many places just like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. It's not the way to handle things. God's big enough to take things in the direction he wants to. I've, there are people who are rebelling against church decisions of the church and they feel totally led by the Holy Spirit, just like we read that statement where the men, the men came with their censors and the people were awed by it. They were awed by it. But it was an offense to God. Right? It's because you're awed by something. Oh, this is great. We're getting more and more people involved. It could be an offense to God. 
people claiming that I had, I had to rebel against the decisions of the world church because uh, the Holy Spirit is, has, has prompted me to do it, just like he prompted Korah and his company. As I said, I, I, where you stand on, on your understanding of the issue is, is not what I'm speaking about. I'm speaking about how do we relate to authority in God's church today. We have to be careful. What kind of spirit do we have? That's exactly right. We see the, reje- the rejection of spirit of prophecy in our church. There's so many places I go and people are like, oh, I just, uh, you know, Ellen White, smelling white. I don't care about this, that. And what we're doing is the same kind of, we're reacting against those statements that speak in reproof. E- either, either that, either we say, I don't believe it, or we say, you know, I just think she didn't intend that, and she, over time she changed her, her at and we somehow dismantle those parts of the writings that would point out where we need to change. I mean, that was the heart of it for Korah. There is something in us that does not like to be told what to do, and it's called the carnal nature, and we all still have it. And we need to understand and pray to the Lord Jesus, Lord, kill that nature in me. And revive in me a love for truth. Help me not to rebel so I can have my own way. And we could make applications of resistance, resistance to reforms. When somebody's speaking about reforming or changing something, we say, oh, we, we don't want to change anything. We've been doing this forever. It's just all the same root. It's not an accident that the Apostle Paul took this story and chose it in his five for the people upon whom the ends of the world had come. In closing, I want to share this statement. The sad history of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who led ancient Israel into rebellion, is recorded as a warning to the people of God until the close of time. Many who imagine that they have a sincere zeal for the honor of God have permitted Satan to control their minds and are accomplishing his purposes. Many have not a sense of the sinfulness of their own natures, nor of the grace of forgiveness. They do not wish to be disturbed. You understand what that's saying? How can you understand the grace of forgiveness when you you won't be disturbed about your sins? I mean, if you you won't see your sins, how can you appreciate forgiveness? No, they don't want to be disturbed. And because of that, they don't see these things. This class never see the necessity of reproof. Sin does not appear exceedingly sinful, note, for the reason that they are not walking in the light as Christ is in the light. Doesn't it tell us in the book Steps to Christ that the closer we come to Christ, the more faulty we appear in our own eyes, right? Because we see our own deformity in broad and distinct contrast to his holy nature? You can't come next to Jesus and not see your weakness, but we don't focus on our weakness, we focus on his strength. But this is making the point that sin doesn't appear exceedingly sinful if you're walking far from Jesus. Sin does not appear exceedingly sinful for the reason that they are not walking in the light as Christ is in the light. They don't see themselves as that bad. Not that much of a need for a Savior. The Hebrews were not willing to submit to the directions and restrictions of the Lord. They were restless under restraint. Didn't want to be told what to do. Wanted to do what they wanted, when they wanted. Didn't want to be told they can't do this and shouldn't do that. Or should do this. They desired to have their own way, to follow the leadings of their own mind, and be controlled by their own judgment. Could they have been left free to do this, there would have been what? 
Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, every pastor knows that if I don't preach about sin, I'm not going to have any complaints. That's a temptation. The saints, I know what sermons you're going to like. There's some sermons I preach, and I know the saints are going to love this. You know what? I love to preach them. Moses didn't need to uh, present the, uh, if the people were left to do what they want to do without any kind of repercussion, there wouldn't have been any complaints. God would have his people learn the precious lessons of humility and of willing obedience to his requirements. They will then be united in their purposes and motives and will thus be brought into harmony of action. Saints, God so wants to save us, but saving us includes fitting us for heaven. And there are things in my life and there are things in your life that come between me and Christ. You may or may not be familiar with the statement. I think this is also in the book Steps to Christ. It says, one sin cherished in the heart is able to neutralize all the power of the gospel. We can talk gospel all day long. But if you're holding on to that one thing, the gospel is not going to help you. That one sin we cherish will neutralize all its power. Jesus knows that. And so he pleads with us longingly to come to him to recognize where our needs are and let him meet those needs and fulfill those needs and give us power and forgiveness and cleansing in our lives. And so these things are recorded for our admonition upon whom the ends of the earth have come. We're living in... Friends, we're living in the, in the, in the last moments of earth's history. And how is it between your soul and God? What is in your life that you're aware of, that you have been putting off and putting off and putting on the back burner? But the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you and trying to get you to make things right with him. For someone over here, making things right is different from someone over here. But the Spirit of God, because of his love for us, delays, the angels hold back the four winds, and he continues to plead, and he continues to woo us to himself, and he continues to show us those, those pitfalls. Now, we're in a new year, and I don't know how this year is going to lay out, and you don't know how this year is going to lay out. We don't know what tomorrow brings us. But right now, at this moment, the Spirit of God is inviting you to make your commitments to him solid. Those things you've been holding off on today, he's inviting you to make those commitments. Today, he's inviting you to make those choices that maybe you haven't been making to reflect upon where you're standing and say, is this where I need to be? To reflect upon where you are and say, am I ready for Jesus to come? And if not, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from saying, Lord, take all of me? How many of you want to give your lives to Jesus today? How many of you want him to search you and try you and know if there's anything, let you know if there's any evil way in you to fit you for the coming of Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've reflected upon yet another lesson that the apostles have given us today from the history of Israel for those of us who are living in the last days. Lord, you have spoken today through the frailty of humanity, but I pray that the Spirit of God would speak to our hearts far beyond the hour of this message that as we reflect upon where we are in our spiritual walk, 
that as we reflect upon the convictions that have come to us through your Holy Spirit and perhaps those things that we have been procrastinating about, Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the resolve to respond to you quickly and heartily, Lord, and to yield our whole hearts to you that we may be transformed into your likeness and reflect the image of Jesus and be ready when he comes again. We ask and pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.